Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for Wednesday, February the 3rd. Coming up, Jeff Bezos stepping down after 30 years as the CEO of Amazon. Plus, we'll go over the latest COVID headlines and Laurentian University filing for creditor protection. All of that coming up right now in the pod. Okay, Jeff Bezos announcing that he is stepping down as the head, the CEO, the Big Shot Smarty Pants of Amazon. Boy, I sure hope he's going to be all right. I mean, am I the only one? Are you with me here? Are you a little worried about how he's going to make ends meet moving forward? Uh, let's ask a tech expert, Mark Saltzman. He joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Mark, what do you think? Is Bezos, has he really thought this through? You know, when you have to give your ex-wife $36 billion in Amazon stock, I think you're going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he's, you know, as you as you know, Jeff, he's not really walking away from the company. He's going to become executive chairman by the end of the year. But he is uh, resigning as CEO to let uh, his... Uh, his I guess his right-hand man, Andy Jassy, who runs Amazon Web Services to become CEO. So yeah, he's going to be just fine. He's got, I'm sure, a lot of pet projects, some of which we know about, like Blue Origin uh, for private uh, space tourism. And he's got uh, other projects and he's a he's got a lot of philanthropic work. So I think he's going to be fine and he's going to, I don't blame him. Look, he's 57. He built up Amazon to what it is over 27 years. He's one of the Richest men in the world, uh, built that company to a $1.7 trillion market cap. I mean, let him go out on a high note, even though he's not going out. Well, I was going to say he certainly is kind of, quote unquote, leaving on a high without a doubt. But do we know why now? Is it because he wants to uh, focus and uh, have his attentions on some of these other projects, Mark? Yeah, it's just speculation. Um, I've heard, you know, that the last couple of years have been tough for him with, uh, as you likely know, with uh, him owning the Washington Post. That angered the last uh, U.S. administration to the point where they probably lost a $10 billion contract with the Pentagon for Amazon Cloud. There's been lots of uh, articles about him on tax evasion, you know, how the company is structured and how they pay very little to no tax. There's been union organizers, you know, protesting outside of his home over employee benefits and uh, work conditions. The, you know, the Amazon Marketplace partners have complained about anti-competitive practices. In fact, you might remember that uh, Jeff Bezos testified last July in front of, uh, you know, U.S. House antitrust uh, subcommittees about, about this. So I've heard that that has been getting to him, but that's just hearsay. Um, when, again, he's built, he should be proud, I think, uh, with what he has built here, not just with Amazon, by the way, which also during the pandemic has also grown and grown, as you might imagine, but Amazon Prime, 100 million subscribers. He launched uh, Apple, excuse me, Amazon hardware, like the Kindle line of products, the Echo smart speakers, the Ring video doorbell he acquired. He bought Whole Foods in 2017. Uh, Amazon Web Services, powering a lot of the businesses today. That in and of itself is a $50 billion a year company. And that's unheard of for such a young company. I think it was 18 years old. So, you know, when you're worth $182 billion and you've done what you've done, why not step down? He's got his whole life ahead of him, right? He's yeah. Is guy. it fair to say when it comes to uh, the world of uh, tech, uh, online uh, commerce, and just being an entrepreneur and so uh, innovative that we've not seen uh, the likes of uh, Jeff Bezos since, uh, you know, Steve Jobs. Yep. Was he kind of the heir apparent uh, of Jobs in a way? I think that's fair. In fact, uh, some would argue that Amazon has changed the world more so than Apple. 
Apple uh, in a few respects, especially when it comes to e-commerce. Um, so, I, you know, they're up there, right, with Microsoft and Facebook, and it's the big big tech, which is is a phrase that is getting pretty tainted, again, to the, my point that maybe he wants to step down. You're going to live your life in a fishbowl. Uh, but, uh, yeah, if, I would argue that um, there are very few people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk out there, and, and if you're 57 and you're worth all this kind of money and you're aggravated with the last couple of years of the attention that you're getting, unwanted attention, then maybe it's time to focus on other things. And again, the Blue Origin uh, space company, it is it is pretty far behind Elon Musk's uh, work with SpaceX and even uh, Sir Richard Branson's work with Virgin Galactic. So maybe he wants to focus on that. Who knows? He also, again, he, he is a philanthropist and maybe he wants to double down on that like uh, Bill Gates is doing. So we shall we shall see soon, I think. But it's again, he's not walking away from uh, from Amazon. So I I think investors uh, and perhaps reflected by the stock, which has moved very little over the last two days, um, maybe because he's not leaving the company, there are not too many people are worried about the future of Amazon, especially with what Andy Jassy has built. Uh, okay, I was going to ask you about that, Mark. What does this mean uh, for the company? We've talked about Bezos and his possible future, but what about the future of uh, Amazon? Is it in good hands? Sounds as if at least an Initially, as you just referenced the stock market, uh, investors don't seem to be too rattled. Yeah, investors and analysts uh, say that this is a great move. Andy Jassy has been his uh, right-hand guy since uh, the uh, early 2000s. He has built uh, built up Amazon Web Services to a multi-multi-billion-dollar company. He himself, by the way, he's only 53. He just turned 53 a couple weeks ago. Jassy, his net worth is about 400 million. And by the way, he's he's a minority owner of an NHL team, the Seattle Kraken, which is kind of neat. Um, and so, so. Yeah, yeah, people saying that he's the he's the best suited for this job, both internally and even if they looked outside of Amazon. So I don't think they're going to change the path, uh, and nor should they. They have been a little bit more open to its partners, uh, the third-party resellers on Amazon, and I think they need to, at least from a perception, because they've had a lot of bad press about how they treat um, their their so-called partners. So I think they're making some efforts there to make it more fair. They're uh, investing in uh, employee relations and and safeguarding the everybody from the warehouse workers all the way down to the the folks who bring the the, the products to your front door. They're trying to improve weight you know, the working conditions. So I think they're on the right path is the short answer. Um, And we'll see. We'll, We'll see soon. Okay. What does this mean, just finally, Mark, for Amazon's competitors? And I'm thinking specifically, of course, of Canada's Shopify. I mean, they've been very bold saying that they, they want to take on uh, Amazon. Is there perhaps a bit of an opening here for the likes of Shopify? I don't think we know yet who's going to replace Andy Jassy at AWS, but no doubt that is because that's really what Shopify is going after. It's the back end, uh, the cloud and the services and the data uh, that's empowering a lot of these companies. So Shopify could leap on this 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 changing of the guard if they don't replace Andy Jassy with the right person perhaps so it is interesting and that does it could give an opening to Shopify to uh to to go after that but this is still not happening just yet so uh but yeah it's it's a really good question and i i uh, a lot of people are are looking to know who's going to run Amazon web services afterwards and is this a chance for Shopify to take advantage of it All right. Interesting moving forward, without a doubt. Mark, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Likewise, Jeff. Cheers. All right. Stay well. There's our tech expert, Mark Saltzman. And joining us now, our friend and vaccine researcher, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, is here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Well, good afternoon. 
Okay, the announcement yesterday, let's start there. Canada has partnered with Novavax to produce vaccine domestically. I think, Dr. Gorfinkel, that uh, over the last month or so, this is something that a lot of Canadians were surprised that we didn't have the capacity or the ability to do. What was your reaction to the announcement? You know, you have to look back to the olden days, some 50 years ago, 5-0, that long ago. Canada used to produce 80% of its own vaccines and drugs. Then in the 1980s, multiple firms had closed. That included AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers, and Johnson & Johnson. They closed their plants, leaving us with very little facilities. So it's not something new that Prime Minister Trudeau is facing. This summer, they realized, oh, my gosh, we've got to upgrade our our facility. So they pour $44 million into the National Research Council facility. That's the Montreal Royal Mount facility. And what happens? It does not pass good manufacturing practices when Health Canada takes a look. So now they're putting another $125 million to build a facility which should be up and running, hopefully by July, that will start pumping out some doses of Novavax. All right. Hindsight being, though, doctor, what it is, is this something you think the government should have been on maybe this time last year, last March, when the pandemic was really starting to take hold? I mean, the hope was always that uh, we would have a vaccine for COVID. And now that we uh, do, we do not have the ability to produce it. So, I mean, could we have been, I mean, 10 months uh, ahead of the game here had we planned properly? It's extremely easy to be critical of governments for not foreseeing things. They instead chose to purchase numerous vaccines in the hope that we would have our supply that way. But clearly, countries are looking out for themselves. The EU, who's invested $4 billion into research, are getting first dibs on that because of that investment. And, of course, the United States, with their billions of dollars that they've poured into their own warp speed, that has also cost us a little bit because now we don't have vaccines coming from that direction. So let's just hope that this will help a little bit. But understand, that that facility is not going to be ready to be optimistic, not until July. So the question becomes, what are we going to do for vaccine supply between now and then? I was also uh, kind of shocked, kind of a little stunned when you said that 50 years ago we produced about 80% of our own vaccines here in this uh, country. Do we know why the likes of uh, AstraZeneca, why they left the country, lured away? Was it strictly uh, business reasons, tax incentives, that sort of thing? And is this something that uh, Canada really needs to take a hard look at uh, moving forward? I see you have a sense of these things. The answer, once again, (laughs) is follow the money. And ultimately, vaccines historically have not been great money makers. Consider that all of, the, of all the vaccines that enter phase one trial, one out of 10 is going to succeed. So by the time they get to that phase three clinical trials, it's 50% that succeed. But overall, historically, vaccines have not been a large percentage of what pharmaceutical companies make their profits from. All right, when it comes to the uh, vaccine, a new study out today is endorsing delaying that second shot, the second shot of the uh, Pfizer vaccine. Uh, What specifically, Dr. Gorfinkel, is it saying, and should this shape Canada's vaccine uh, rollout? It's interesting. So this refers to the AstraZeneca vaccination. 
So Canada has pre-purchased 20 million doses, enough to vaccinate 10 million Canadians, because two doses are needed four weeks apart. And Canada is doing its rolling reviews, so we hope to see, and that this is what they say, it's going to be available in the next coming days. Health Canada will decide. Is the AstraZeneca vaccination going to be approved in Canada or not? But the exciting news here was that it appears that it's safe to wait up to 12 weeks between doses. The efficacy, actually, of the vaccine increases from 76% to 82.5%. It actually goes up during that time. And the beauty is, this is a, 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 it can be stored in regular refrigerators. So family doctors like myself or pharmacies could give it out as long as we could get our hands on those doses, which is, as we know, not a given. Right. All right. Alberta has announced new rules when it comes to quarantine, and this is in relation to the uh, variants that we've uh, seen of uh, COVID-19 coming to the country. If uh, you test positive for a variant, they're now uh, quarantining for 24 days, which is the longest quarantine in the country. Do you think that that is uh, necessary when it comes to these variants? It's interesting. So, So what they've decided is this. The way the law works is that if somebody comes from out of Canada, this is all international travelers, they must quarantine for 14 days. Everyone, no matter what province, no matter what territory, it's 14 days. And what they've added on is that all household contacts have to add an ad- added 10 days to confirmed cases. So that means 24 days for household contacts of COVID-19 cases. So that's the fine print in this. It's not that everybody has to sit for 24 days in, in quarantine, but those who test positive and and are household contacts have to do the 24 days. That's what Alberta's talking about. And why? Because they've identified the canary in the coal mine. They identified 57 cases, 50 of which were the U.K. variant. So that we have these variants which are highly, highly contagious. And they're really worried about it, and rightly so, because we've seen these variants overtake countries rapidly with the old-school variant. So is this something you think, just finally, Dr. Gorfinkel, that the rest of the country, should we here in Ontario consider this? You're talking to somebody who thinks strict measures make a lot of sense. Until we have enough people vaccinated, that is our vaccination. That is our main prevention. What else are we to do? And we know that these are already in Canada. They are spreading. It's community spread. In fact, if we look at Alberta's cases, of the 57 cases, there were five, no, actually there were eight cases not even linked to travel. So it's out there. The question is, can we keep the numbers low enough that this doesn't rapidly become the main source that we're seeing, the main variant out there? Because understand, for the U.K. variant, if we're 100 of the old-school COVID virus, now we would have 150 cases of the U.K. variant. And they may just prove to be a bit deadlier. The nice thing is, is that we do believe all vaccines are going to be effective against the new variants. Yeah, I just can't uh, believe we're just a little over a year into this uh, coronavirus uh, COVID and we're already referring to old school COVID as opposed to (laughs) these uh, variants. Yeah. Dr. Gorfinkel, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. We'll talk soon. Many thanks. All the best. You as well. Our friend and vaccine researcher, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel with us this afternoon. 
Well, sadly, we've all become used to business filing for bankruptcy or creditor protection during this pandemic. But an institute for higher learning? Yeah, that's right. There's news this afternoon that Laurentian University up in Sudbury has done just that. And for more on this, we're joined now by Doug Hoyes, licensed insolvency trustee. He joins us here now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doug, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Okay, this, I think, is a first. I mean, have you seen this in your long career, a university filing for protection? No, I have not seen it. And, of course, we've only got 20 universities in Ontario, so it would be kind of unusual if this was a regular occurrence. But, no, this is a this is a first for sure. Yeah, and what's going on here? What's uh, happened up at Laurentian? Do we know? Yes. Well, as, as is the case when everyone anyone gets into trouble, the money coming in was less than the money going out. And this is not something that was, you know, just happened at Laurentian. When you go through all the court documents, which I spent a few minutes doing uh, earlier today, because uh, I'm not involved in this, I, I'm not the anything to do with Laurentian, but reading all the publicly available court documents, they have been in financial trouble for quite some time. They've been running deficits for quite some time. And it has now all come to a head, partly because of COVID, perhaps. The students are not physically on campus like they used to be. There's a lot of remote learning, which means the university isn't collecting money for things like student fees and residences and food and beverage and things like that. Um, And then the province uh, also imposed a 10% reduction on tuition fees last year, but the university, most of their costs, two-thirds of their costs are salaries. And, and, you know, wages and benefits, so your costs remain fixed. If some of your revenue drops and you are already in the hole, next thing you know, you're filing for credit or protection. All right, and I think this surprises a lot of folks listening to this right now because when you think about universities, I think a lot of people might equate those to, I don't know, the public health care system and, you know, public education and that uh, our tax dollars take care of this sort of thing. But at the end of the day, a university, like anything else, as you're describing it, uh, it's a business. Well, I think you're exactly right. It, uh, I, w- I would characterize it that way. Now, it's a not-for-profit corporation. It's been around since 1960 up in Sudbury. But yes, it still is subject to the laws of economics. The money that comes in has to cover all the expenses that go out. And with, uh, with COVID, you've got a lot fewer foreign students coming in, and they're the ones who pay a significantly higher tuition. You take that out, and uh, and you've got issues, and that's certainly what we're seeing. The the tax the the grants and support that universities get from the government is not the biggest component of their budget. Tuition is the biggest component of their budget, and when that number shrinks, but your expenses stay the same, you've got problems. All right, they got problems. How do they deal with them? Would they deal with them like any other uh, business, uh, you know, businesses that would come to the likes of uh, you? Would you uh, sit down, have a look at the uh, balance sheet and uh, start looking at uh, restructuring, that sort of thing? Yes, but unfortunately, there's not much on the balance sheet. So it's not like they've got machinery and equipment we could sell off or inventory or receivables. The big thing on the balance sheet is their, you know, land and buildings. That's that's the stuff they've got, you know, classroom equipment. There's not anything really that can be sold there. So a conventional restructuring isn't isn't possible in this case. I mean, the other thing a business would do is, well, we'll just close our doors and shut down and, and that'll be it. Well, how do you do that with a university? What do you say to the students who are two years into a four-year program that, hey, we're just shutting down and, you know, sorry, you're not, you're not finishing your education. So I think 
a way is going to have to be found to keep it going. And the only plausible answer there is, is someone's going to have to write a big check. And I assume it will have to be the government. I don't know who else will do it. I mean, as part of their their restructuring, they will be borrowing pretty close to $30 million over the next seven or eight weeks to get them from now till the end of the school year. That's how big the hole is right now. So it's not the sort of thing that a bit of fundraising is going to cure in the short term. Yeah, Is it a possibility that the university, Laurentian University, might just have to shut its doors? And I hear what you're saying about these students caught in the middle, but could there be some accommodations made by the province, by the uh, government to, uh, you know, other universities maybe take these uh, students in to make sure that they're able to continue and finish uh, their studies? Because I think you've also got to look at the long-term viability here, no? Yeah, I totally agree. And you and I are just speculating here. We don't have any idea. But, yeah, that would make sense to me. There's a few thousand students there. Part of the problem is a lot of the students come from northern Ontario, northwestern Ontario. I mean, that that's why they're going to school in Sudbury and not in Toronto, for example. So to say to those students, okay, well, you got two more years left on your degree, you're going to finish it somewhere else, is somewhat problematic. Although I guess if you're going to do it, now's the time to do it because a lot of university is remote right now. So Students can be attending from wherever. So if they cannot come up with funding in the short term, then yes, that's likely the the solution. But you're absolutely right. This is a long-term problem. They've been bleeding money for many years. So whatever has to happen, they have to be on solid financial footing going forward. Otherwise, a bailout now is just going to create the same problem again in the future. Yeah, just finally, uh, Doug, what does this say about the pandemic and about the Canadian economy uh, as a whole? I mean, just give us, you're on the front lines there, uh, your take on what you've seen when it comes to bankruptcies and solvencies and the fact that it's now hitting some institutes of higher learning. Yeah, everybody is impacted. We we know that the frontline workers are impacted. If you're uh, working at a restaurant while well, you've been out of work for quite some time, but now we're seeing the follow-on effect to many different organizations that it would never occur to us. It would never have occurred to me that uh, a university was going to get into trouble, partly as a result of the pandemic. The pandemic didn't cause the problem, just like it didn't cause a lot of the business problems we're having, but it's amplified the problems that were already there. So businesses that were undercapitalized to begin with, that were just hanging on by a thread, have been pushed over the edge by the events of the last 10 or 11 months, and I'm afraid we're probably going to be hearing more stories like this until the economy is fully reopened. I'm afraid you're right. Uh, Doug, appreciate the time and the analysis. Thanks so much. Good to catch up. Thanks, Jeff. There's Doug Hoyes, licensed insolvency trustee.